0: Well, there are great things ahead of us here, and today we begin uh, a new series. Before we do, I'd actually like to pray for a moment together. Father, we are thankful that you have spoken to us. You've spoken to us through your word, but chiefly through your Son, our Savior. As we open this word today, it is with a view that we might see Jesus For who He is, as He is, and not as we might have imagined Him to be, or even that we might wish Him to be, but that we would see Him in all of His glory, from His goodness, love, and mercy, to His holiness and righteousness, those attributes of His which could never be ours, but they are His by right of His divinity." And he is awesome to behold. We need to see him in that full array. And we will glimpse him today in a few select portions of scripture. And I'm praying, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive your truth on this day. Guard us from the attacks of the evil one who would both deceive and slander Guard us from the deception that he loves to bring into our souls and minds to confuse us and to dissuade us. Guard us from the slander and accusation that he brings, both against you and against one another. O Lord God, shut him out of this place on this day that we may find that spiritual nourishment and rest that we are in need of. Feed us richly on your word. Convict us where our hearts need to be convicted of our sin and even our immaturity that we may change and grow. Convince us of the glory of Christ, the great treasure that he is, that we, more, that we may gladly forsake all things in order that we may possess him. Spirit of God, our minds are so easily distracted and we've carried all kinds of baggage into this place today. Would you sort through all of that and speak so gently, yet so clearly and sovereignly that there is no other competing voice or even noise in our souls. Let yours be the singular, exclusive voice in our souls today. And we want so much, Lord God, for you to accomplish all of your holy will because we know that your holy will is good and right and that's where we find pleasure that never comes to an end joy that is eternal. So for your glory and for our good, do these things and many, many more. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you can see from the title slide, we begin a new series today. Uh, We'll return to some book studies in time, and uh, we always enjoy those kinds of things together. But today we wanna begin a series that I think will carry us through all five Sundays in November on the Christian conscience. And I, I have preached and taught through this material before and have found my own heart so stirred and challenged and blessed. Uh, I've found other friends uh, to, to testify they've benefited from it. I really think this can be a significant moment for our church. I also think it's significant in light of the fact that we live in a day where there's so much division over opinions and preferences and convictions and even some, yes, matters of conscience. So it is with this in in view that that we step into the study today. Um, I think we have some really important and even good material today, but I think the best is yet to come. I'm just going to tell you that. And I felt frustration in this week of preparation, like, but I just want to get to Romans 14 and 15 but we need to lay a little groundwork first, all right? So, so trust me, bear patiently in this, although I think you're, you're gonna find some things that are very helpful today. Uh, I really do believe it, it will get uh, a little better even in the weeks to come. Now, having said that, I wanna recommend a book to you. This is a book titled Conscience, and uh, there is a little subtitle there. If you can read that, a step out of the way here, because uh, I can't read all the way to the back screen there. What it is, how to train it and loving those who differ. And it's actually written by two men that I know, Andy Nacelli and J.D. Crowley. J.D. Crowley has actually been a missionary in Cambodia for 40, 30, 40 years. So he has worked out a lot of cultural differences uh, in a context that would be very uh, unfamiliar to us. Uh, And then Andy Nacelli is actually a teacher at a seminary in uh, the St. Paul, Minneapolis area He's, he's been a friend through the years. He's a younger man, but just blessed of God. And these two partnered on this book. I would strongly encourage you to pick up a copy. It's not a heavy read, uh, and it's very manageable, very accessible. I even say it's pastorally written. So it's written with ordinary people like us in mind, and there are a lot of helpful uh, scenarios and illustrations. Um, I. I in some ways, if I just started opening or open that book and started reading through it and said, I'm going to take five Sundays and this is going to be my sermon uh, content each week, that would, that would not be a bad thing other than the fact it's not really preaching. And I believe God has called us to do that here. But I would strongly encourage you to do that. Last I looked on Amazon, you can see even the price range from used to new. And if you can pick up a copy, uh, that would be a great thing to read even in this month together. Today, though, as we begin, part one is exploring the conscience. Uh, and I want you to recognize that it ultimately is the gift of Christ. You say, what what do you mean? Well, let, let's just jump in on this and, and let me explain a, a few things to you. Uh, a number of years ago, we decided as a family that we were actually going to prank some good friends of ours after dark on a cool fall evening much like the evenings we've had in recent weeks. And so we loaded our four children into our old Suburban, and we stopped by the Family Dollar Store and uh, picked up some inexpensive toilet paper and a couple of cans of inexpensive shaving cream. Uh, That was also the moment that our youngest learned, saw for the very first time back in that special toy aisle, uh, a whoopee cushion. You can imagine the great joy that he had in realizing you mean there's a toy that does this? Uh, so it was a, it was off to a great start there, and we left Family Dollar, and we drove several miles over to the neighborhood where our friends lived, and we parked up the street in a dark spot, and we said to our kids, we're going to go in under cover of darkness and be really quiet, and we're going to wrap their bushes uh, with this toilet paper, and we're going to write messages of uh, love and appreciation on the sidewalk for them, and you know, we weren't going to do any vandalism to the house, so some of you are already concerned, like, was that toilet paper going high in the trees and over rooftops? No. I was very manageable in the cleanup and all of that. And uh, so we went in, and we're trying to be real quiet, but there's some giggles and laughter, and I think somebody's coming to the door, and we, you know, hide in the shadows, and nobody came out. So we finished our our little prank, our little decorating prank, and uh, s- snuck back to the car under darkness, and... And all four kids and Chris and I piled back in, and, and as the door shut and we drove away, then you know laughter erupted, and people were saying, kids were saying things like, "Oh, it's going to be great. I wish we could see them when they find it." And we got to keep this a secret. Never, never let them know it was us. And we were driving out of the subdivision on our way back home, and as the conversation paused for a moment, I hear a, a tiny little voice in the back seat, and and a child who remained nameless but it was Seth. (laughs) A little voice we hear in the back says, I feel like I've sinned. And suddenly the joy of this prank went right out of my soul. (laughs) Because as a dad and a pastor, the last thing you want to be guilty of is leading your child or a precious member of your flock into sin. Well, we had to explain to him Oh son, it, it's not sin. Well, he was actually wrestling with his conscience. A young, immature, and I would say untrained conscience. What made him feel like that? Probably sneaking around. There's a certain sense where I'm glad he doesn't like feel comfortable sneaking around. But was that really sin? Well, you you laughed already at this story. Maybe some of you are wrestling like I'm with Seth. I think it was sin. <laughs> Over this series, I think we'll come to see some things that really help clarify whether a prank like this would fall into that category. 500 years ago, in uh, April of 1521, Martin Luther stood before the Diet of Worms, a, a council that had been convened because what began, and we just celebrated Reformation Day yesterday, wasn't it? I'm losing track already that that glorious day where Martin Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the church and he really just wanted to start a discussion he wasn't ambitious to start a reformation but over time, as those 95 theses began to stick, not just to a door, but to the hearts and souls and consciences of people, a reformation was ignited. And he was hauled into this council of very powerful political and religious figures, and he was asked to recant what he was preaching and teaching and writing of that point. But he spoke these famous words, I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the councils because it is clear as the day that they have frequently erred and contradicted each other. Unless, therefore, I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by the clearest reasoning, unless I am persuaded by means of the passages I have quoted, unless they thus render my conscience is bound by the Word of God. And famously, he said, I cannot and will not retract, for it is unsafe for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. May God help me. Amen. And we marvel at that man who stood with strong and mature and resolved conscience in the face of great opposition. It's another example of a conscience functioning in a powerful way, and I would say a biblical way. Over the last seven months, we've witnessed an unprecedented time of rising political, social, and spiritual pressure. More than ever, we seem to be divided as to our perspectives and even more committed to our own opinions, some of which we would elevate to the level of conscience. And I saw again this week, the kind of thing that you have seen in social media and on Facebook, uh, an individual wrote these particular words with respect to uh, the political situation. He, he said, it. I couldn't get all of this there, but how can I remain silent? I cannot in good conscience enable the policies of either party. I cannot bear to be responsible for the ungodliness they propose to foster or model. Voting for the lesser of two evils is still voting and enabling evil to the ultimate detriment of the kingdom. I refuse to be complicit and compromise my faith for fleeting gains that have little or nothing to do with the kingdom. My conscience, and more importantly, the word of God, will not allow me to do otherwise or to silence either of them. That's a powerful statement, isn't it? And if you are a God-fearing, scripture-loving person yourself, you might even be challenged in your own conscience to say, well, I don't see it quite that way. But what does it mean that this brother who really does seem to be very committed to God's truth and to the right understanding and application of God's word, would actually reach a conclusion where he says, I can't vote vote for either one of these candidates. It would do violence to my conscience. That can put you in a bit of a, a, a crisis of conscience, couldn't it? Well, I would submit to you that in the course of this study, I think you will see this, and if I remember to come back to this specific example to show you where it kind of fits on the spectrum, I think this is clearly a man with a strong conscience that is guided by the scriptures, but I actually think uh, it is not as flexible as God intends for our consciences to be in some situations, And by saying that the conscience should have a degree of flexibility, I do not mean it should have a degree of relativity or relative thinking within it, but rather that we recognize there are some issues on which I can flex my conscience for the gospel's sake. Now that's a lot, even in those three examples, but I think they are illustrative of the the kinds of consciences that we have carried into this room today. Because some, quite honestly, are immature and actually overly sensitive. Sensitive in ways that God himself never intended for you to be sensitive. And I think through this study, he wants to grow and strengthen your conscience where you could actually release some things from the backseat, as it were, and not be so obsessed. Uh, Not carry around false guilt, even false shame that accompanies that feeling like somehow you have sinned against God when he is saying, it's not sin, my dear child. Other of us need to grow and mature, where our conscience would function in a strong way, where we would not be lords of our own conscience, because we'll see even in the course of our brief study today that there's only one Lord of any person's conscience, and it's God on high. So today we begin this study. Now I, I also want to say one other thing, because I know, uh, both from experience and then just even digging into this again, it's the type of thing that we can't say everything, and five messages is not enough. But it is enough. And what's going to happen is that you're going to want to discuss some things, and we should. So we're actually going to set aside two different equip classes, and that'll be the third and fourth Sundays of this month. So I will be in the third message and then the fourth message. And so all the kinds of questions and comments and thoughts that begin to accumulate over these next couple of weeks, bring them back that day, because we want to have what I hope will be a really helpful kind of roundtable discussion, Q&A, just interacting with one another, exploring God's word, and letting him grow and change us together. So five messages and, and two discussion times. I hope that will be really helpful for us all. Now, if your Bible is not open there yet, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 with me, please. And this is the theme verse for us. And we will not spend a ton of time here in this verse today, but this is where I want to begin In 2 Corinthians, Paul is is recounting actually a number of really difficult circumstances in ministry as he writes this letter to the saints at Corinth. And by the title, 2 Corinthians, you'll remember there was 1 Corinthians. So he's written one letter previously. This is the second letter that he wrote addressing a number of things to them. These were hard times for him. And if you had an opportunity to read through the first 11 verses, you would see that there was such significant suffering in Paul's life that he actually despaired of life at one point, thinking that God had written a sentence of death over his life and some of his ministry partners at that point. Life was hard. And yet, in verse 12, he writes these words, Our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world With simplicity or as as some of your English versions may have actually translated that word holiness and godly sincerity not by earthly wisdom but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you the testimony of our conscience despite difficult circumstances And you should know this, too. If you're not familiar with the the saints at Corinth, there were some of them there who were so arrogant that they said, first of all, Paul, we don't really like you, and others who actually questioned his apostolic authority. So this is a tough crowd that he is is trying to serve. But he's able to say, not just with reference to Corinth, but all the other ministry that he and his gospel partners have participated in. The testimony of our conscience is this, that we behaved in the world with simplicity or holiness and godly sincerity, and we weren't functioning according to earthly wisdom, it was the grace of God at work in us. You know, that would actually make a great epitaph for every follower of Jesus. If you and I could live out our days in such a way that when it's all said and done, and we look back on a lifetime of Love and and relationship in the context of family or service and ministry with friends and to friends or service in local churches like this or even outreach of evangelistic nature or, or missionary endeavor, we would be able to say, The testimony of my conscience in my dying moments is this that I have behaved in this world in a holy, godly manner. Can you say that today? There's not one of us here who would say, Oh, I've done that perfectly, but many of you can say, you know what, by God's grace, that's the trajectory of my life. Oh, good for you. I commend you. Time is too precious to waste any of it, isn't it? But you know, a strong conscience is ultimately what produces that strong testimony. So this is our theme verse, if you will, over the next five weeks, and I would encourage you to just mark it, maybe even keep a little bookmarker there in the pages of your Bible so you could go back to it and learn it together because as followers of Jesus, we want to develop and maintain the kind of testimony that Paul is speaking of here, and that ultimately is tied to a strong, good, clear conscience that is submitted to God. Now, let's, let's try to define the conscience. If you ask the, or, an average person, what is the conscience? You might get a variety of definitions. You might get a variety of explanations. Here's one that I that I truly love, Uh, this this brilliant person says that the conscience is something that makes you tell your mother before your sister does. Yeah, that that doesn't define it in a dictionary way, but everyone else goes, yep, a conscience will do that. If you Google it, uh, you will find uh, a, a little different kind of definition here. An inner feeling or voice viewed as acting as a guide to the rightness or wrongness of one's behavior. That's helpful. Uh, It's not far off from a biblical definition, but um, it's headed the right direction. Or maybe a couple of pictures I could illustrate. Uh, Sometimes we think of, of the conscience as the shoulder angel, Sometimes people refer to that little angel on the shoulder, and then we ask, which one? The good one or the bad one? Um, conceptually, that, that kind of heads us in the right direction. Some of you are old enough to remember the, uh, one of the first Disney cartoon features on the story of Pinocchio, and Jiminy Cricket sang a song that was once famous. It's probably largely unknown right now, but he actually sang that song, Give a Little Whistle. Do you remember that? Yeah, some of you are revealing your age right now by admitting that you remember that. But listen to a couple lines from that song. When you meet temptation and the urge is very strong, give a little whistle, give a little whistle. Take the straight and narrow path, and if you start to slide, give a little whistle, give a little whistle, and always let your conscience be your guide. So that doesn't really define it, but it at least captures Some of the spirit of life that we recognize there are those moments of decision where right and wrong stand before us, and developing a sensitivity to that inner voice or that inner guide is important, unless the inner voice or the inner guide is broken. That's why we need to turn to the Bible. When the Bible defines the conscience or explains the concept to us, it begins to use several different terms. If you look through the Old Testament, you will not find one single verse that uses the word conscience out of the Hebrew text. Remember, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew uh, long ago. But you will find passages, like the one I've referred to uh, on the screen, 2 Samuel 24, verse 10, that says David's heart struck him. That is, he was convicted of a sin that he had committed against God, and his his heart struck him. Well, that's actually the concept of conscience appearing for us. One theologian writes, and it's that bottom bullet point, the conscience is the heart in its function as a moral guide. Beginning to see the emergence of this theme, the word guide has been used a couple of different times. In Psalm 51, verse 10, when David is actually confronted by the prophet Nathan of both the sin of murder and adultery, he responds in broken humility, repenting to God. And in verse 10, he wrote those famous words, "'Create in me a clean heart, O God.'" renew in me a right spirit and I think that that phrase creating me a clean heart is probably in reference to his conscience that was so defiled by his sin the weight of guilt was pressing upon him the brokenness of of what he had done and even what he was at that moment was just painfully spread before him and he's begging God to create a clean conscience is that even possible And the Bible tells us in multiple places that it's not only possible, it is God's great desire for every one of us. God doesn't want you to carry around the the guilt and grime of a defiled conscience. It's paralyzing. It's debilitating. And we'll have an opportunity in the weeks to come to talk about the biblical way to clear the conscience, to experience the very kind of cleansing that King David is praying for. You come to the New Testament, though, and there actually is some specific terminology that appears, and you will find the word conscience. So if you pulled, your, uh, if you pulled some kind of concordance off the shelf today and you started looking for references to conscience, uh, even though, again, New Testament's written in Greek, there are English equivalents, and one of those in particular refers, as you can see the specific definition there, to the psychological faculty which can distinguish between right and wrong. And that word occurs 30 times in the New Testament. And 20 of those are in Paul's writings. And I've given you one example of those from the book of Acts. Here again, Paul has an opportunity to bear testimony to Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord who had died for the sins of both Jew and Gentile. And he stands in this council. And again, the pressure was on him in much the way it was on Martin Luther 500 years ago. And Paul says, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And I think one of the things that strikes me is that he is saying that after he had been a persecutor of the church after he had murdered people, after he had done great violence to the early church as it was growing out of the Pentecost and the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. Either he is a lying hypocrite or he's some kind of psychological fiend that he could like excuse the past memories and the reality of his guilt. Or he has experienced something so powerful that he can look on his past, even with some horrific moments of egregious sin before God and before his fellow man, and say those words, I have a good conscience up to this day. Again, the work of God to cleanse a man's conscience as he did for Paul or to cleanse a woman's conscience as he's done for many others is nothing short of miraculous grace. So this concept of conscience that begins to develop has to do with distinguishing between right and wrong, making moral judgments. Uh, We'll not take time to look through multiple references this morning but i just want to summarize some of those things that you'll find and and together we will look at a number of references that show us these things in the weeks ahead the conscience can be good it can also be evil it can be strong it can be weak it can be clear as i've spoken of and and cleansed it can be guilty It can be wounded, it can be defiled, it can be emboldened to sin, and there's even one reference that speaks to a conscience that has been seared. None of us want a conscience that would fall into the categories of weak or defiled or seared. All of us desire to have consciences that are good and strong and healthy and whole. That's part of how you sleep well at night, a good conscience. So let's take a moment to just consider two what I'll call theological definitions out of the biblical material that we can accumulate to learn uh, what a conscience is. Uh, Pastor and author John MacArthur has written a great book, The Vanishing Conscience. It'd be another book I would recommend. It's an older title now, but it's still available in some, some locations. But he writes of the conscience That the conscience entreats us to do what we believe is right and restrains us from doing what we believe is wrong. The conscience is not to be equated with the voice of God or the law of God. And I would even add, your conscience is not the same as the Holy Spirit. All right? It is a human faculty that judges our actions and thoughts by the light of the highest standard that we perceive. Now file that one away because what some of us are going to have to do in the course of the study is, is come to the place where we admit that it's not ultimately God's authority we've submitted our conscience to. It could be the culture that we live in. It could be the family that we grew up in. It could be some other authority who exerts so much pressure on us that we shape our conscience to conform to what their wishes or their intentions are, but it's not God's. And beloved, when we come to that moment, we really only have one choice, and that is to say to God, please forgive me. I'm sorry. I repent of submitting my conscience to any other authority. I I submit it to you change me, grow me, strengthen me, mature me. But my conscience must ultimately, ultimately be submitted to God if it's to function in a healthy way. So the conscience is a human faculty that judges our actions and thoughts by the light of the highest standard we perceive. You know, if I could pause right here and ask a question, so what's the highest standard of authority that you perceive at this moment? If you're a follower of Jesus, it, it should be his word, right? Right? It should be the active presence of the Holy Spirit as he guides and convicts and leads and, and moves you. Some of you would say, well, I'm not a follower of Jesus. We would invite you to consider God's claims and the authority of his word because if you attach your conscience to any secondary authority uh, aside from God, your conscience can never actually function to the full extent and capacity that god almighty designed it for created it for but what is your highest standard of authority today james packer who is with the lord died not too long ago but a theologian that is prolific in his writing and in his teaching and and speaking through the days of his life but a little one-sentence summary and this this is helpful for me but he wrote very simply that the conscience is god's watchman and spokesman in the soul Let's describe the conscience. What does the Bible teach? Well, there are a number of things, and I'm going to try to put this into five or six concepts for you. First of all, uh, every person has one. Go back to Romans 2 with me, please. If you're in 2 Corinthians, Romans is uh, just two books earlier in the New Testament. So it comes right after the book of Acts and in the second chapter of this letter to the Romans. And if you're using one of our books uh, our, our church Bibles there, from the seat rack in front of you, you'll find this part of, of the Scriptures on page 940. In Romans 2, verse 14, Paul is, is making a case that we're all accountable to God's law. We're all accountable to God as our Creator. And he writes, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, and he, and he uses that term Gentiles to refer to those who are non-religious people. All right. It's more than just non-Jewish people. He's really speaking of non-religious people. When when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. So what what's he saying? Let me just interject right here. So if you travel around the world and, and you arrive, let's say, in a In a remote village nobody's ever brought to them the Bible nobody's ever laid out the Ten Commandments before them but as you get acquainted with these people you find out that they live by a a community law and in those laws it's crystal clear that they too as we as followers of Christ value life so murder is illegal they also value uh, and and respect the the personal property of one another so they say no stealing And as you get acquainted with these people, you actually find that they have a fairly extensive moral code. But there's no copy of the Bible, no copy of the Ten Commandments. They've never even heard of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is talking about here. Where did that sense of of morality come from? A sense of right and a sense of wrong, a sense of justice and equity and and law-keeping and even punishment and vengeance as as it's appropriate. Well, Paul is making the case that this is the result of God's creation And as he goes on in verse 15, they are showing that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So in some cases, that conscience functions where it accuses them of wrong. I remember an occasion where another one of our children had gotten in trouble at school, and uh, the, the teacher made Kristen aware of some things, and so it meant one of those hard conversations, and you're... You know, first of all, you're like, my kid, I, we did not teach you to do this kind of stuff. And like, who are you hanging out with that would corrupt you in such a way? I'm, I'm joking. Some of you are catching that. But anyhow, Kristen sits down and has a conversation with this particular child. And before long, this child just dissolves and the tears are flowing. And, you know, it's that kind of can't even talk and get the w- w- words out, out because, because there's so much going inside. And, and as a parent, you're like, praise God, my, my, you know, my second grader's conscience hasn't been seared. Um, so you're always grateful for that. But that was the internal witness of the conscience that was accusing that child at that moment. And, and mom's uh, confrontation brought a kind of accusation. The teacher's authority brought a kind of accusation, but ultimately that individual child needs to respond to the inner witness that God has created in the soul, sometimes the, your conscience will excuse you. That's not always a bad thing; can be, but you know that's what allows a, a bold and courageous man like Martin Luther to stand in the face of of more powerful people than most of us will ever face in our lifetimes. There he is in one moment, and and. He could sleep with clear conscience that night, even though they brought multiple accusations against him, questioned his faith, questioned his motive, questioned his his spiritual integrity, all kinds of horrific accusations brought against him, yet his conscience was strong, functioning under the authority of God, and his conscience excused him from those accusations externally. Every person has one. Number two, your conscience reflects the image of God in you. The conscience is one of the characteristics of humans which separate us from all other life on the planet. Now, despite what you may think, uh, animals do not have a conscience. And I know, I, I'm a dog owner. We've had four dogs in our history. All four of us have given us the same look that some of you are thinking of right now. Oh, he, puppy knows when he's done wrong because I walk in the house and he just looks at me like, what did you do, puppy? Puppy. And then you go discover, you know, the trash has been strewn all over. But but, trust me, there there is nothing in that dog at that moment that is going, I have morally defiled my master's law. Our relationship is broken. No, what your puppy might remember is that the last time he got into the trash and thinking, ooh, extra snacks, and then you came in the room and exploded, He, he has the memory that, you know, the big dog in this pack The alpha dog got really angry the last time I I did this. There may be a little echo of a memory there, but often often those dogs are just reading your vibes at that moment. There's no moral judgment taking place where that dog is thinking along the lines of I am a bad dog. But you as a human being are created in God's image. You are a different classification of created being than all other animals or plant life. On planet Earth, and your capacity to make moral judgments is a reflection of the of the moral nature of God Himself. God is a moral being; you are a moral being, and the capacity to make moral judgments is a reflection of the image of God. This makes it a very precious part of our identity. Number three, your conscience operates like a judge. We were beginning to see that in Romans two. Go back to verse seventeen with, or sorry, uh, fifteen with me again. Do you see that, that little comparison there at the end? Their conflicting thoughts, accuse or even excuse them. Well, that's legal language. In a court of law, accusations are brought against a guilty party. There are judgments given that may excuse or, or clear someone who is being accused, but ultimately it's the judge who has the authority to convict, to sentence, to apply the law. And your conscience functions in the same way. It condemns or clears you, and it operates in terms of right and wrong, black and white. You know, your conscience doesn't do grayscale. Now, there's a part of our souls that, that functions in that gray area, and, and I'm not saying that, you know, there are no gray issues in the world. Uh, there are plenty of them, and I'm not saying that you as a person don't have the capacity to think it through and maybe even move from one end of the scale to the other, but your conscience won't. Remember, it it is designed by God to function in a way where it answers to the highest authority it perceives. So when it sees gray issues, it's gonna run to that highest authority that it perceives and and make the best decision it can at that particular moment. Conscience operates like a judge. Number four, your conscience is yours and yours alone. It's for you and you only. In in one respect, we could say that no two people share an identical conscience. Now, perhaps in a perfect world, we will, because I do believe in a perfect world, our consciences would be perfectly submitted to God, His authority would be uh, equally clear to us all, we'd be living according to it, deciding according to it, and so maybe we could say our consciences would be identical at that particular place, but that's not reality. And the conscience is actually a precious gift from God designed for your good and joy. No one longs for you to sleep better at night than God himself. And part of the way you sleep well is to have a clear conscience. We sometimes say, don't we? Well, can you rest your head on the pillow tonight knowing that you did all you could or you did what was right? Or can, can you go to sleep with a clear conscience? And, and it's a great thing when you can say yes. Well, that ultimately comes from God. But he does intend for your conscience to be his watchman and spokesman in your soul. So by saying it's for you and you only, that that doesn't mean you have the right to just say, "Well, it's my conscience and you can't tell me what to do." In some respects, that would be true. Like we should not be like dictating to another person's conscience what he or she does or does not do. But God is lord of that conscience, and that's actually why, as you see there, the last two points: you must not surrender your conscience to others. Neither must you lord your conscience over others. Well, that's, that's challenging, isn't it? Let me illustrate it this way. Meet Kristen. Meet Danny. Do you like those cartoons or vectors? I wish my hair were still that dark. Kristen's got a nice tan going there too, right? We've lived together for uh, 29 years in matrimony. Most of it really happy, some of it not. That's because we're two different people, and among other differences that we share, our consciences don't operate it the same way. And if you ask us each, what are things that at the conscience level are non-negotiables for you? There would be some areas of agreement. Some things that we share, and I represent those by simple letters of the alphabet, E, F, G, and H. Uh, For instance, we At the the level of conscience, we believe that we are created by the God of the Bible in His image to know, love, serve Him, worship Him. We both are committed at the conscience level to the deity of Jesus Christ and the gospel of His life, death, and resurrection. Those are matters of conscience at the the deepest level. Uh, Parenting. I I think there are many, many values there that we share together. Where we desire similar things for our kids and have discipline in similar ways and for similar offenses. I thank God that that you know our kids learned pretty early. They couldn't play one against the other. Oh, they tried plenty, don't get me wrong. Um, but but we're together on those things. But then there are some things that are unique to Christians' conscience, uh and and probably fewer than mine because I tend to be a little more legalistic. For instance, I'm I'm pretty convinced that being late without an excuse is sin. Now, no, I can't make that case from the Bible, but my conscience functions at a really high, strong level there. Being on time is important to Kristen. I don't want to act like, you know, it doesn't matter to her, but you know, if stuff happens and the schedule changes and and circumstances run beyond our control and we're just going to be late, She's not the one who's pressing the accelerator to the floor, breaking other laws to keep that one law you know, against the evil of lateness. She's not the one who's getting worked up about we're gonna be late, we're gonna be late. She's like, it is what it is. And if you ask her, there would probably be things that she would say, it's very important to me. My husband just doesn't see it. He's such a knucklehead. And then there's a fourth category. So there are things we share And then there are the things that are unique to each of us. I guess that's one category, so maybe I should say third. But then there's a a fourth category, and I kind of put it in that, you know, bright, that's as close as I could get to something that kind of looked like maybe the glory of God in heaven, right? The bright light. And that's represented by those few letters in the alphabet where God is saying, listen, Danny and Kristen, I know your consciences are operating in certain ways here, but these are things that I'm just telling you straight up, this is my law. This is my authoritative direction. Both of you need to believe it and, and value it and practice it. And even though we've been believers for a long time, there's there are things in that category that we just aren't aware of yet because we're still immature in the faith. We're still in the process of growing. Now, when you go down to that category at the bottom of things that are are really important and significant to Christian Christians conscience and then there are th- things that I have and and we don't share that what's the real solution for this Many of us try all kinds of techniques and this is where the study's going to take us in the weeks ahead when in the weeks ahead where we where individuals or even groups of people in the context of a church like this have very strong opinions and we've seen this erupt politically haven't we I mean in the last couple of weeks I've just I, I've It's taken my breath away to see some of the theological heavyweights, people that I've admired and respected and and valued, people that God has used to change my life through their preaching and through their writing and through their ministry arrive at such very different conclusions as a matter of conscience before God how they have cast their vote or will cast their vote on Tuesday. And see, that would be an example of things that are at the conscience level that really are not going to be resolved through debate or discussion or negotiation. And, and this is not even a possibility in the realm of conscience. Compromise. What do we do? God has a beautiful truth for us that we will discover and, and go to three or four weeks from now. If you want to read ahead, go read Romans fourteen and fifteen. There is a way through all of that really difficult stuff, and that. But that brings us to the the last point: the solution to this, the solution for my wife and for me, and our differences of opinion and conscience at a very deep and committed level. The the solution for you in your challenging relationships, for us as a church, uh, as we continue to try to grow together and stay on mission together, when these. Challenging differences arise. Here it is God is the only Lord of your conscience. And his desire is that each of us would have a conscience, first of all, that is conformed to his truth and his will. And I know every one of us thinks that our opinions are equal with God's truth because we feel like it's God's truth that has actually formed our opinion. So, what's the difference there? Often, there's a vast difference. First of all, that we would be people whose consciences are conformed to God's truth and will. And so that's going to mean a couple of things. And again, a preview of of what's to come next week and the week after. Clearing the conscience of all the sinful debris and then even some of the cultural debris. And then calibrating the conscience according to God's truth uh, for maximum strength. And that brings us to the second part. A strong and flexible conscience for the sake of the gospel. This is the part of the series that I just love. This is where I feel like my life gets so much clarity when I begin to focus on a couple of key truths that Paul wrote first to the Corinthians because we'll go deeper into 2 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10. And then we're also gonna spend time in Romans 14 and 15 where Paul steps in the middle of churches that are actually debating and even dividing over some really significant questions that they have. But he shows them a path forward in partnership where, where the clear consciences of all parties can be maintained and the gospel mission preserved. And that's what we have to be after. And then finally, deferential for the sake of love. There are some things that you and I actually need to release and stop making a big deal about, particularly in our marriages, in our homes, and even in a church setting like this, our communities, our workspaces. We need to stop being proud knuckleheads. Stop acting like, in my case, I'll go back to this since I just said it, being late is a sin. See, sometimes I actually need to step back and say, the God who controls all things knew that our that my perfect little schedule would get messed up this morning. And even though I fully intended to be at that meeting, that appointment, at church, at that particular time, it really was beyond my control. Can I trust this good, sovereign God or not? Deferential for the sake of love. So there we are. There's the... Step one, and I conclude with this question. So, how is your conscience? You know, a long time ago, Seth felt the pressure of an immature and untrained conscience, but in time grew to understand the truth and freedom of a good prank. He's told me of some of the pranks that are going on in his dormitory as a freshman. I'm glad it's out in Iowa, because some of them don't smell good. I'll just leave it there. It's not sin. Actually, it's 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 part of part of college life. Some things to be enjoyed. But what if what if we as parents had had bound his conscience? Some of you, well, actually, all of us have areas of immaturity, areas that still need to be trained by the truth of God. For some of you, that means you're you're actually carrying around false guilt. For the longest time, you actually thought, "I I think there's sin in my past. But it's not God who ever called it sin. Maybe this series and the study will will help you mature and grow that conscience to where you'll move from the category of immature and untrained to the category of strong, healthy. Some of us live with consciences that are weighted down by real guilt and full of shame. And you, like David, are are shackled with the weight of sin. It may not be murder as his was or adultery. It may be something just as egregious when you look at the, the law of God and say, Oh, God, could you ever create in me a clean heart? Is a clean conscience even possible at this point? And beloved, the truth of God's word is clearly and emphatically, yes, there is cleansing for every guilty conscience. What a great thing to come out of the series with that kind of good conscience. Maybe some of you would, would say, You know, I've actually gone beyond just the, the guilt and shame that I feel, and my conscience is so corrupted, even seared, where I feel next to nothing. Is there hope for me? And yes, there is hope for you. The gospel is powerful to revive and renew, even to remake your conscience where it functions beautifully. You say, I've disobeyed God for so long that I just feel dead to him in every way, feel dead to his word, dead to his authority, dead even to others. The relationships around me, God can and will do this if you will submit to him. Some live with weak and fearful consciences, but that's not God's design for you. There are actually certain things that God would invite you into, practices. And some of them have no like huge spiritual value. But they're just good gifts that come from God's hand. And because your conscience is weak and fearful, you're not able to enjoy a good gift that God has actually created, designed, and given to you. And wouldn't it be a great thing if coming out of this, God frees us from that kind of weak, weakness and, and fear that grows more out of maybe cultural uh, practices in a community or maybe even some wrong teaching of a spiritual nature at some point where, where God liberates you and just sets you free so that ultimately you can be a person who has a strong and flexible, fully functioning conscience. Let's pray together and ask God to do all of this and much more in the weeks that are to come. Father, how thankful we are that we're not only created in your image, but we're created for a relationship with you. And we stand here really just at the the threshold of this particular study, praying that you would bring your authoritative word to bear upon our hearts and lives so that we would be the people who live uh, as you desire, who speak, who serve, who love as you have planned. And may the testimony of each person here be as Paul's was, that one day we too could testify to the reality that we have behaved in this world, in this life, with holiness and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, not by cultural constraint, but by the grace of God as we maintain a strong and healthy conscience. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.